Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we explore the emerging field of data science. We bring the best minds in data, software engineering, machine learning and artificial intelligence. Now here are your hosts, Frank Lavinia and Andy Leonard. Hello and welcome to Data Driven, the podcast where we discuss the emerging fields of data science, machine learning and artificial intelligence. If you like to think of data as the new oil, then you can consider us Car Talk because we focus on where the rubber meets the virtual road. And with me on this epic road trip down the information superhighway is everybody's favorite chief data engineer, Andy Leonard. How you doing, Andy? I'm doing well, Frank. How are you today? I'm doing well. Um, uh, I'm super excited. One might even say chuffed. <laughs> what are you chuffed about? My uh, latest class, uh, a series of classes, I think since we last recorded, have been um, have been up on Wintelect now. So mm-hmm. I have a course kind of introducing kind of the big data concepts, uh, and then a course introducing uh, MapReduce and Hadoop, and one for Hive, and one for Pig. And Pig just went live last night. Nice. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. It was uh, quite a bit of work to get that done in a compressed time frame, but uh, I'm very happy uh, that those are out there. And uh, Just go to Wintelect now, folks. I'm working on getting a code for data-driven listeners um, cool. so that you'll get like a two, two-week free trial. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, very cool. I'm, uh, I'm glad that, that it's done. I know... That's a lot of work, uh, developing content and then recording it and editing it and doing all of the stuff you have to do, labs and all of that. Um, it's just a lot. And I know you had a deadline. And I also know you are like me in this way. We are both deadline driven in addition to being data driven. <laughs> so the deadlines, they're not they're not pleasant. I just I don't like them, but. I've come to appreciate their necessity in my life. And um, maybe it was a point of maturity. Yeah, I think it's a point of maturity or just a a point of getting a better perspective on life, as it were. But that that doesn't change the fact that they stink. This is true. (laughs) This is true. Um, There's actually – actually, Andy and I were talking about this before the – um, before we started recording, um, was uh, there's a guy, if you Google his name or search him up on YouTube, David Goggins. Uh, first off, he is, he's like, you just can't believe this human being exists, like, because he's just so intense. And, but he's real. And he, um, he has a philosophy of, you know, pursuing the things that really suck. Essentially. Yes. Cause it makes you stronger and like you just sit and watch him talk. And it's just like, you, you just kind of like, you're kind of on the fence between shock and awe. Like, it's just like, wow, this, this guy's amazing. Former Navy SEAL. Yep. Um, and um, interesting guy for sure. Well, he, he does these really painful physical marathons. I mean, I, I they're not, they're beyond 26 miles. Oh, the 26 miles is probably like breakfast for him, you know? <laughs> yeah, he's, I don't know what they call those things, but they're very extreme. 
and it's um, they like run across a desert. I mean, it's just it's just, and he is he's he's also. I mean, we have a family friend family rating. He does not, and right. it's okay. I don't think you know if that if that bothers you, then don't listen to him. But he does use profanity. It's the way he talks, and. Um, you know, and he, he also uses hold- it. I don't think it's gratuitous. I think he it actually does. I think some people when they use profanity, it's just to, to look cool or just gratuitous. Yeah. But this guy, like some of the ways to say, there's <laughs> there's only one way to say the things that he has to say. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. No, I, I completely agree with that. It, there's a difference between trying to sound cool and trying to communicate. And I think right. profanity can be used in either of those uh, instances. And he's, you know, he's definitely trying to communicate when he uses it. So, again, it, I don't take offense at it. Uh, do I won't let my um, I won't let my younger kids listen to it. I'll say it that way. I know Frank, <laughs> Frank your children, I would say, are a little too young to that. But my, you know, Stevie Ray's going to be fifteen in a few weeks. Um, so yeah, I, have, I actually sent him the link. You you turned me on to him sent me a yeah. YouTube uh, interview with him. And um, yeah, I forwarded it to Stevie Ray. I found it very motivational personally. I knew Stevie would. And yeah, I know he, uh, you listened this morning and he fired you up. That's right. I was like, yeah. So, um, so today is our first time we're recording in 2018. And one of the things we promised in 2018 was to do a deep dive we did make that topic. promise. Yeah, last right. show. Yeah. Right. And um I wish we had like the the submarine dive sound effect. Maybe I'll add that in <laughs> post. <laughs> we um, need that. Uh but uh so this is inspired by .net rocks. They have their geek outs where they just talk about one particular topic and they go really deep. Um but uh, we're going to focus uh, just on data stuff. So what what is our selected topic for today? We are going to talk about the difference between data science and data engineering. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, this, is an, this is an important one because I think uh, as you are a chief data engineer uh, yep. and my title is, you know, data scientist, um, they're both kind of similar, but kind of different. And There's some overlap. this is, there is a lot of overlap and you kind of need both. I mean, realistically, you do. Um, so I kind of touched upon this in a, I think it's the previous time we talked might even been in the last show. Um, the, you can go through the entire course to become a Microsoft certified data scientist and not hear the words Hadoop <laughs> yeah. or Spark yeah. or Hive or Pig, any of these tools that are kind of part and parcel for big data. Um, I think one of the courses mentioned ETL, but in passing. Yep. yep. Uh, and this goes back to an anecdotal story we heard um, about how there was a Fortune 500 CEO said, I want you know, 50 PhDs resumes on my desk to res- to interview for a data scientist. Not one of them knew what ETL was. In fact, I think the one of them thought ETL was the um, the code for the uh, national carrier of Ethiopia. <laughs> 
I saw a story like that from Jen Underwood. I don't know if that's the one you're referring to. She, I think uh, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah she put but. this on uh, LinkedIn back in 2017, and it was it was kind of amazing to to think about it conceptually. But I frankly was not surprised by that. And I, I'm not trying to say, you know, you can't do data science if you don't understand data engineering or extract transform and load, which is what ETL stands for, or data integration is what I've been calling it for a while. That's certainly not the case. In fact, uh, I, I, that's one of the points I want to make. And I, I'll say that's probably the, the, the point we've already made in passing, but I want to emphasize that it's a separate discipline but that it's um, but it's also important and it doesn't diminish, I think, the data scientist role if they don't know how to do data engineering. But I do think it would diminish their role if they don't understand first what data engineering is and second, uh, the importance of it to their role. Um, and the reason I say that is it's just not possible to uh, to do data science uh, well, with dirty data. That's a, probably the prime example is the data itself needs to be cleansed. That's a function of data engineering. And it very often needs to be shaped. Let's say you start with very clean data, Frank. Um, you, you know, from I, some I have a funny, have a funny story about that, actually. Tell, tell me that story. So uh, this is when I was interviewing uh, over the summer, and mm -hmm. uh, they were looking for a consultant. And... Um, I mentioned, I said, you know, they were, they were looking for someone to kind of do a, a, a prototype project of um, machine learning. And I said, well, because they, they want to detect outliers in their, in their data set. And uh, I said, well, you know, a certain amount of time is going to be about cleaning the data. And then, and then the interviewer kind of stopped. It was like, whoa, whoa, no, no, no. We have entire teams of DBAs and data admins that make sure our data is, is, is clean it's well-structured. It's fully normalized. Hmm. And I'm like, that's when I realized that the term clean data or cleaning the data, it, you know, yeah. people can misinterpret that. I think even if you had the most perfect, uh, what is it called? BNF, backer an hour form or something like that? Um, or my well, third normal form. Third normal form. That's it. Yeah. BNF is yep. something else. And, yep. Yeah, um, but that's okay. Yeah, good stuff. Um, but... Um, I just proves I need more coffee. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, no, so he was like, no, everything's like third normal form and, you know, perfectly normalized and all that. And that's when I realized that when you, when you say the word cleaning, uh, right. that implies that implies that there's something kind of wrong with it. So right, right. what I like to do to avoid controversy is I'll try to catch myself and say shaping the data, which I think is a much more, accurate thing realistically there are very few people or very few organizations that have really clean data i mean that's that's just it's that's an ideal that is approachable but not achievable yeah. um but uh shaping the data the, the data that you have store particularly in rdbms's or relational databases is almost never i would say i'll you know what i'll go out on a limb and say never going to be in this in the format that a machine learning or ai algorithm is going to want it to be in well, and that's that's an important point. And I think, you know, when we talk about, uh, you know, the different pieces of, of data cleansing, data shaping, the, the, these are the components of data engineering, in my opinion. And again, the data science part, which is a is a great and valuable part, that's kind of the front end. That's where the data science 
meets the decision makers, um, and, and increasingly data science is uh, being automated to the point where it's making and then acting on some of the decisions itself. Um, that's where we start crossing that border into artificial intelligence. And, you know, when we put actuators on that, uh, uh, be they virtual or physical actuators, you know, we've crossed yet another threshold. So I don't want to confuse that. And I think I think it was Buck Woody who did a really good job of kind of delineating the lines between the disciplines that we talk about here, machine learning and data science and artificial intelligence. But I love that you started using the term data shaping because third normal form was one of EF Codd's rules that he wrote. Gosh, I want to say that was back in the 70s. Yeah. And he came up with uh, some great um, best practices for storing relational data, uh, easily the, the father of relational data. And, um, you know, so it's interesting to me that in that conversation, when you mentioned clean, that they they responded with something about shape or, or normal form, which I think is related, but not the same thing. Um, what I mean by dirty data or data that is unclean um, lots of lots of things can happen. You can have missing data. Um, and over time, people will start with a database, right? And they'll start writing down, um, uh, you know, just uh, very basic rules. A great example of this is publicly available. It's from uh, the database from Major League Baseball. And if you go look at the stuff they were storing, um, you know, decades ago, it's not nearly as rich as the data sets you have for 2017. So what's happened is they've added fields. So when you add a field, let's say, I don't know, in the 1970s, they started tracking the speed of each pitch or something like that. Um, When you start doing that, well, you've got a field there called speed of pitch. And every pitch that you've recorded prior to that date, that field's going to be empty or have a null. Optimally, it'll have a null, which null means missing data. But and, and while that's a very accurate representation of the state of that data, it's a mess to manage null in even business intelligence and data warehousing and a reporting application that would run against that data stored in third normal form. It's a multiplied mess when we try to bring that into one of these super cool analytics engines and plot these great visualizations on it. So you're saying what you have to do is you have to filter out some of those nulls. Well, either that or set them to a default so that you know right. that you know that data is just not available here. Think, think about this. Let's just take that example to that to the next extreme. So you want to graph the average speed of pitches over uh, decades. I, I would bet that that would be some useful data. I bet that you could show a trend that over time um, – the, the speed of pitches, the average speed of all the pitchers in the major league for which we have data has varied. Maybe it's gone up. Maybe it's gone down. Maybe it's been faster some years than other years. But what would the graph look like? How would you visualize that data, say, prior to the time we were recording the speed of pitches? What would that right. look like? And it, it, I'm not asking it as to say that it's bad or wrong. I promise I'm not judging it. I'm asking a legitimate question about what do you put on the graph? How do you show that in your visualization, be it a scatter plot or some really super cool 3D kind of thing, right, that you could walk around in 
<laughs> using, <laughs> uh-huh, cool. using an Oculus Rift or something. What, what does it look like? And I think it's a legitimate question. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the one of the reasons why the data scientist has to be aware of what's going on in data engineering, even if they don't know how to do it. They have to understand and appreciate, I think, what's happening there and vice versa. The data engineer has to realize, all right, what am I going to present this to? For instance, if you default all those to to zero or even worse, negative one, <laughs> you know, what does that do? So now you've got a graph where it looks like everybody was pitching the ball at negative one miles per hour, which means it was going out to center field or something, I guess. I don't know. Really slow. Or like went beyond the speed of light and it broke the universe or something like that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, these are the it, – it's nice. It's good and, and, and proper that we think about capturing the data and presenting the data that we have in a very accurate format. But – at a minimum, there's three other quadrants of data in there that we have to deal with. We have to manage those states. And, you know, that's that's one example. Another is you can have duplicate data. And that's often harder to detect than missing data. Um, duplication. You have the same row in there twice. Or this, the same rows in there once, but you've written a a query that goes after that data and produces what we call a Cartesian product. It's multiplied the number of rows and it's done so by duplicating, you know, one row once or a million times. Um, and it's sometimes the queries are bad. Bring down a server, isn't it? Say that again. I said uh, doing a join and accidentally creating a Cartesian product can be an awesome way or a fun way to bring down a server. Absolutely. Yeah. You can, uh, because, yeah, you're bringing back a whole bunch of data. You can, you know, depends on how the engine responds to that, that you're, that you're hitting. But And when I say yeah. fun, just for people listening, that was sarcastic. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> I just want to make sure. I don't want people you know, to be as like, a consultant, what Greg said. Yeah, as, um, <laughs> as a consultant, no. I have mixed, uh, mixed emotions when it comes to those things. Because, you know... <laughs> On the one hand, it's an interesting problem to solve, and it does happen. People have, you know, write queries, and it takes a server to its knees. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, so that can mean I get some money and a, and a gig out of it or an opportunity to help. Uh, I, I'm altruistic occasionally. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on the other hand, it's like this tragedy that's happening. These people are trying to get some work done, and they can't because the server's at its knees. So, right. You know, all of those things, those are just two, I think, rather common examples of, you know, things that are processes that occur in data engineering. When you're trying to get the data uh, shaped and uh, cleaned so that it's presented to whatever the engine is that you're going to use downstream. And some of the engines are, in particular, has some really good data cleansing stuff in it. So it does the work of uh, some ETL processes. I, I consider them a little basic, but it's, it's, they're not, you know, they're not bad and, and they right. do work. Um, I find that, you know, there's still a need when you're talking about billions of rows of data um, and very wide data sets, you know, several hundred columns in, in a file or in a relational table Um those loads are still best suited for relational, uh, sorry, for data integration engines, things like SSIS or Informatica or Ab Initio, some of the other engines that are available out there. 
it's not to say that what R does is bad. It's um, it's not built to handle these type these types of data. It's just not built to handle that enterprise load. Um, so you still in a and especially think about this, Frank. You're reporting daily on something. Let's say you're keeping track of the stock market, and you want to see, you know, daily snapshots of that. Um, once once you get to a certain size of data and the stock market data, for the most part, isn't very dirty. It's there's a lot of really good clean sources out there for that. But just the the size and the volatility of the data, that the volatility can make it um, more of a data engineering um, issue than say just a raw data science. So it may be that you want this data once a day. It may be that you want it near real time. And so. You mentioned Hadoop. Uh, Hadoop is a, is great for stream processing, um, and you know it, there's a and MapReduce actually was built to uh, to manage stream processing back in the day. Um, the streams right, have actually, turned into these rivers now. So, <laughs> no, that's I like that analogy. Um, some would see, even say torrent. So two things I want to add is that you mentioned, uh, you know, if you have the baseball pitches uh, data, and I think this, this brings up some interesting points that I don't think are immediately clear, particularly for beginners, um, is, well, if you set, if you don't have pitch data and you set it to a default value, say like zero or negative one, that's going to wreak havoc when you call an average or any kind of aggregate function. Right. Uh, it's going to really blow it out of the water and make it useless. Uh, the other thing is, and I think this speaks to the rise of uh, NoSQL uh, databases, uh, is you would have to say you are adding a new field to an RDBMS. You have to change the schema. Right. And... I don't know about you, but my experiences with changing schemas or structures of data, of, of RDB messes, I've never described them as fun or stress-free. No, it definitely isn't. And it's the whole idea of, I'll call it the primacy of the schema. Um, one of the nice things about some of the NoSQL databases is they do something called schema on read. So, you can have data structured in a file system, laying in a file even. And when you do the select from that file, it reads it and it dynamically infers a schema uh, from your statement. Now, I, I'm really oversimplifying things here. So. Right. And there's multiple engines and there's multiple ways to, uh, to build that bridge. I mean, it's not. Exactly. But the yeah. idea is, is, is where does the schema show up? And in relational database engines, like you said, Frank, they have to be created first. So, they, you know, when you talk about the primacy of it, it's it's prime. You have to build a table before you put any data in it. Right. And then for schema on read, you can have a file sitting there, um, you know, in the file system, and then you can write a query and it'll go open the file, pull the data out and kind of plug it into the schema and then hand it to you. Interesting. And so, so no SQL, uh, does that stand for no SQL at all? Or does it stand for not only SQL? You know, I, 
I don't know enough about the movement or really the you know all of the technologies to to speak to it intelligently. Um, I think it means more than one thing. I'll say it right. that way. And I I would say it's probably a more of an indicator that this is in some way different from storing data relationally. Right. And I think it's easy to forget that, you know, relational data, data stores have been kind of the dominant force probably from the seventies up until about 10 years ago. Absolutely. Um, and, and with and good would, reason. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I remember I was talking to um, someone I was doing startup evangelism at Microsoft and uh, there was a startup and everything they had was in, you know, I think CouchDB, which is a NoSQL database, so which means that, you know, the, 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 there is no schema or whatever schema there is. It's very um, fast and fluid. And mm-hmm. they were complaining about data inconsistencies. Well, and that's one I of the side like, effects. <laughs> I was kind of like, yeah, well, you know, if you want consistency, you have to go to something a little bit more relational and, but there's very good reasons, I think, for startups to um, not go with an RDBMS first and why it's popular in those fields. I think Facebook would be a good example because they add features all the time, uh, whether that's the ability to do live streaming or the um, different type of reactions. Uh, remember, for the longest time, you can only like something. Uh, and now there's, what, five different emojis you can attach or as a re- reaction to things. Right. Uh, if right. you were to change that, sorry, go ahead. I did a quick search. Um, one result said they use MySQL. Okay. So I'm not sure. I thought I read someone last night where they used uh, HBase or some derivative of HBase. I would think they would need something. Well, I'll say this based on my experience with MySQL um, in the enterprise. Um, I think MySQL has some really, really cool features, and it's an interesting solution. I, I don't think it would handle Facebook unless you, you know, got to source and started playing around. Right, and they certainly have the resources to do that. Um, they do, and AWS did that. I mean, with Aurora, they right. they popped up in the code, beefed it up, made it faster, and, and I've worked with Aurora. It is faster. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you're seeing kind of this um, this rise of a of a new kind of uh, database. And I know at first when NoSQL came out, the impression I got was no meant no. Um, <laughs> it was kind of militant. Now uh-huh. I think it's kind of mellowed, where it's like no, no, well, no stands for not only. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, which is it's an interesting it's an interesting shift, and I think. Um, I think if you're a startup and you're 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 very or you're working on some kind of you're prototyping something or you're coming up with something that's going to be very fast and changing. Um, I mean, take IoT data. You know, if I have a bunch of sensors coming out and they only report on you know fields X, Y, and Z, what's going to happen when I roll out a new generation of sensors that add you know A, B, C, and D to X, Y, and Z? Right. Um, that means I have to. Uh, particularly if I'm doing you know real time or near real time streaming of data, then I, they don't really have a heck of a lot of options to you know kind of take it offline and redo the schema. Um, right. I at first was very kind of skeptical of um, kind of these schema lists or schema on read type data stores, but I, they've slowly come to grow on me. Now, part of that is my own personal bias. 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, my, my database professor in college was a coworker of COD um, and dated IBM. And oh, wow. so, so yeah, so it was kind of like, you know, that's the only way to do it. Of course, you know, um, I right. definitely, uh, I remember it blew my mind when uh, it was in the nineties where somebody was talking about um, an object oriented database. And in my mind, the word database meant RDBMS, you know, at right, the time. Right. And I was just like, can you do that? Like, <laughs> it, it was like well, that meme, you know, what sorcery is this? <laughs> there, there's, you know, a lot of this grew out of, um, you know, and I'll throw an engineering term out there from my electrical engineering background, uh, an impedance mismatch. And, you know, there's, there's definitely a divide when you try to persist objects into a database. Now, there's a bajillion design patterns out there for doing it, um, data access layers and entity framework and all of these sorts of things were built to help bridge this divide. But a friend of ours and a, a former guest on the show, Kevin Hazard, wrote an article a few years ago. It's out at SQL Authority, which is um, uh, Pinal Davi's website, probably the number one SQL Server SEO site out there. And Kevin wrote this, what I consider to be a fairly advanced topic. We'll have to put it in the show notes, the link to it. But his premise was, what if we were designing databases today? What if we were building a database or inventing a database or the concept of a data store today? How different would it be given the economics of today versus, you know, when they were created? And there's always been a need to store data um, since the first application was written. And, and he kind of goes through that. You know, the back then storage was more expensive. Uh, any kind of persistence was expensive. Uh, but now RAM even is relatively cheap. And, you know, what would they look like? Would they be built, um, you, you know, as as the, the ones that are out right now, Frank, I think a lot of the technology that's still around, and this is, we're recording this on January 11th, 2018. Uh, most of the technology that we use day in and day out at its foundation is built to work on spinning head uh, hard disk media. And that is a concept that's, in, in my opinion, beneath the foundation. This is in the footer <laughs> of, right. of everything. It's this idea that there's a seek time and that head drops and begins to read. And you want to minimize the amount of reads, you know, the amount of, at least the amount of times the head picks up and drops. So you structure the data on the platter in such a way that, it can be sought, and with one drop of the head, all of the data you need can be read, or with a minimal number of those. And I, I mean, operating systems are this way. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's Linux or Windows or any of the other OSs. They're all built this way. There's still legacy code in there in the architecture that that's that way. And, you know, it's going to take some time, maybe a decade or more, for us to get out of that mode and start thinking about, okay, how do we use, you know, the random access we can get uh, in a SSD, uh, you know, a solid state drive, because um, that's completely different. So, 
what we've got right now, I think, is the equivalent of code that runs really, really fast on an SSD because SSDs are really, really fast. <laughs> you know? hmm. And we've we've kind of jacked them up, right? We've made SSDs act like these, uh, you know, down on their I.O. channels, they act like these spinning disks. But a lot of the architecture that made us create the I.O., uh, you know, the interfaces down on the uh, the disks were due to the fact there were spinning disks. So what would that look like if we kind of, you know, take this back up? What would it look like if we were building a database now? What if we uh, could write directly, you know, to the I.O. and the I.O. was as fast as SSDs? Or what if we could, you know, compress the data in a columnar fashion versus a row-based fashion? Um, and and hold you know hold this in terabytes of RAM. How different would databases work today? And I think it's a fascinating concept to to chew around. And I see some of this. I mean, you mentioned HBase, uh, you know, earlier. You see um, HBase kind of taking this approach of minimizing the steps. Right? <laughs> it's it's sitting in a file, and when you write the query. It reads from the file, and it's a schema on read. And I think that the speed of HBase is what I find compelling about it. Um, it's a very elegant and um, a very fast and very simple, in my opinion, way uh, of getting data. We're not we're not inferring a schema onto it uh, early. Or actually, we are inferring a schema, but we're doing it very, very quickly. We're doing it on read, but we don't have to build all of this infrastructure to have a schema. We're using what's there. There's a file system. There's a file. We're going to read it. I don't know how much simpler than that you can get. Right. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, that file system is HDFS, which is in itself an interesting abstraction. <laughs> it, is. it is. So, you know, it's nice to see, you know, it's nice to see folks trying to, trying to solve these problems. You, you can't just stop today and you know scrap all of the operating systems and all of the code that's been written and rewrite everything. That's not that's just not feasible, and it wouldn't be you know, it wouldn't be very efficient. But you know, we, there's there's just a ton of stuff in there. And again, all of this I feel falls into into the purview of data engineering. Most data engineers aren't tweaking SANS. You know, that's not happening. But right, not anymore. They, they have to be aware of right. of the SANS. And there's some folks out there in the SQL Server community. There's a handful of folks that, uh, one, we talked to, Denny Cherry. Uh, you interviewed. Uh, Denny specializes in, like, virtualization of, of SQL Server and, and SANS and, you know, all of that. And that's a, that's a big part of getting performance out of the relational engines. So... We can't we can't stop and start over. It's interesting to think about it. I think, but you know, we're not there. But you know, data engineering, in my opinion, goes right up to the spot where that data is staged and ready to be uh, consumed by these awesome data science uh, engines, these out, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning engines that then take that data and do some amazing stuff with it. But the, the caveat, I think, is um, in, in a way, they, those engines need to be spoon-fed. 
Um, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but that data, it, it, they're particular, right? Oh, and yeah. It's very easy, very easy to get some amazing visualizations and awesome graphs that are somewhere between useless and lying simply because somebody didn't do the data engineering correctly. Well, and it's, you know, um, it, it's a real, I think this difference between data science and data engineering is a real um, fine example of kind of practical engineering versus kind of research type science. And then yeah. what you're seeing is kind of a, a, an emerging of those two fields uh, called applied data science or applied data engineer, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, there's going to be people at academic institutions where they're, they're going to ponder the, the next wave of algorithms to figure out, you know, a particular uh, solution. Uh, then you're going to have people who work at, you know, organizations, um, you know, company, private companies, government agencies, where they go and they try to apply the, uh, scientific research, you know, and it's really kind of the, it it is interesting. And I think you're right. I think those algorithms do need to be spoon fed. Um, because I think, uh, what's the joke about, um, scientists build or scientists, researchers create castles in the sky and then engineers have to build them and live in them or something like that. Is that the, <laughs> I forget. there's also a joke but, about, yeah. uh, you know, hypoth- some people get so hypothetical. They say, imagine a spherical chicken, um, <laughs> you know, um, no, it's, it's just, uh, it's just interesting. So with, I think we kind of covered the, um, data engineering side we of did, the yes. fence. So then data science then uh, is kind of a catch-all term, uh, which, or should we talk about what HDFS is? Because we kind of dropped that acronym and <laughs> said it was well, great, but uh, then we... That's okay. The Hadoop file system, right? Mm-hmm. Hoop, Hadoop so, distributed file system. Hadoop distributed file system. Apologies. So I'll let you talk about it, Frank, since you got the acronym right. Sure. So Hadoop, uh, HDFS is uh, a distributed file system. And, and the real key, the real aha moment, I think, that the engineers who built Hadoop had um, was this notion of being able to do cluster computing on commodity hardware. And commodity hardware is uh, not as expensive as kind of these specialized, um, robust uh, machines. I'm talking like supercomputers like Cray. Um, we're talking just off the shelf kind of like Dell's and like, you know, off the, right. off the shelf stuff you can go and buy at Micro Center or Fry's or Costco. Yeah, um, commodity. Commodity, right? There's like nothing yeah. special yeah. about it. And the key uh, there was you have to be fault tolerant because, you know, these things may not last. Right. Uh, particularly if you're doing it at Google scale where you have hundreds of thousands of machines, you know, you have to factor in that, you know, 3% of those machines are going to fail within the first X number of you know, machine hours or usage hours. Right. Right. So HDFS or Hadoop distributed file system, remember that word distributed. Uh, basically that. when you upload something to HDFS, it converts it into blocks essentially. Uh, and it breaks into blocks. I think the default is 128 meg. That number sticking uh, out. I don't remember. Um, 
but anyway, so there's a default size. Um, let's just say it's 128 meg. If we're wrong, let's know in the comments. And then, you know, we, we own up to it in the show notes too, by the way. Um, and, um, the, the internet, idea- the internet says 64, 64 meg. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure that's configurable. And, um, so you, you then, it then will distribute those blocks Remember, files live in blocks and then those blocks are then distributed and there's something called a replication factor, which the default, I believe, is three. So that means, in practical terms, is that your file exists in three different places at once. Right. It's automatically copied. So this would have been useful. Um, I'll pick on ClearDB again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe they did because they deleted all the backups, you know. It's possible that it did exist in, it's likely it did exist in more than one location, but yes, they got them all. At least they're thorough. Um, anyway, not to get too derailed. Uh, so um, the, the idea is that the, you know, if one cluster fails or a certain number of cluster fails, then you can still process your work because the, when you, when you're doing the, the, the crunching on that data, then it, you know, it'll just say, oh, you know, no number 362 didn't work. So let's try note 804 or something right. like that. Yeah. Uh, and then it just goes on with this merry way. And um, that, that's basically what HDFS is. Um, all right. So let's talk about data science. So data science is kind of a catch-all term. Uh, you often hear the terms um, neural networks. You hear the term machine learning. You hear the word algorithm thrown around a lot. Um, but basically what it is is that you – machine learning is essentially instead of writing code that solves a problem, you write code that solves things for itself. Yeah. And that is very hard to do. I mean that that is some pretty serious research stuff mostly. But here's the good news. Most of this has already been written. In fact, a lot of what we call machine learning is statistical analysis. And a lot of this is already been done, um, mm-hmm. you know, decades before computers actually. Um, yeah. But what's great about computers is that they do it much faster and they can do it in degrees and dimensions of levels of data that a human would take, you know, weeks or months. The, the computer can do in a few hours at most. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's a couple of competing um, libraries for this. Um, the most popular one, I would say by far, is SKLearn, and that's short for Scikit-Learn. Uh, I've even heard recruiters, and you know how recruiters are when it comes to new technology, right? C-Pound, you know, C-Sharp. Yeah. Um, I've heard them call it Sklearn. Which I'm not sure if that's a real term or is it just a recruiterese. Um, yeah, um, not sure. So Scikit-Learn is a uh, it's an open source library um, for doing um, machine learning, and there's a number of algorithms in there. Uh, you, you each of these algorithms kind of has a name, and it really describes kind of what it does. Um, the scariest sounding ones are something like stochiastic gradient descent. That Which sounds like I hear, it's protesting uh, some some early philosopher. 
I was thinking I was whenever I hear stokia stokiatry or stokias stokiastic, I think stogies, like cigars. Oh, I think stoics. Stoics. Yeah, that works yes. too. Um but uh basically what it does is it's trying to find the minimum or maximum value across the data set. That that is a you know, the dollar store version of explaining what um stochiastic gradient descent or SGD is. Sure. Um, it is a very powerful algorithm, but it doesn't do everything. Uh, another thing that you often see is you hear the term linear regression. Um, and that is used for predictive analytics or just kind of um, uh, trying to figure out what happens and why, what factors into something. So the idea is, is that, and I think, I, I think why it's called regression, because when I think regression, I think of somebody mature acting immature. Uh, <laughs> But uh, is the idea that you, if you could graph data onto a chart and then you, you, you have the data that kind of says what's already happening, you want to reverse engineer or regress kind of how did you get to that point? Like what, what causes sales to go up? You know, obviously, you're not going to sell um, a lot of ice cream if there's a bomb cyclone going on. Like right. A storm we just had in the Northeast. Uh, right. If there's a massive heat wave, you're probably going to sell more ice cream. Right, right. So this would be about graphing temperature to sales. And there's there's a function that you can work out that there's a correlation between the two. And that's really key. There has to be correlation. Right. And another uh, revelation that kind of came that or another point of fact to dimension is that correlation is not causation. That's a biggie. That's a big one. That, that could, that, that's something our politicians and <laughs> really need to figure that one out too. Uh, but I'm going to drop that right there. Um, I'll have to put a link to this book in the uh, show notes, but there's a book about all sorts of things like that. It's called How to Lie with Statistics. Interesting. Yeah. And you don't, it doesn't need to be updated for our modern age of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Uh, it's still happening. People are lying with statistics. They're just able to generate the statistics a million times faster. And come up with prettier charts. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, Mark Twain, he said there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. <laughs> I mean, and Mark Twain clearly lived before in the time of computers. <clears throat> Although if you yeah. watch Star Trek Next Generation, maybe maybe he, um, he uh, where he appeared on the Enterprise – uh, <laughs> maybe, that was maybe an that's... excellent show, by the way. That that was like a two-parter. That was a two-parter, and, yeah. That was yeah. Um, that was pretty funny. Better than uh, some of the movies. Oh, <laughs> uh, most of the movies. I never understood why they could come up with a really great two-parter episodes and really lousy movies. I never understood. Yeah, that. yeah. There's, I'd say, especially in the next generation, there were. There was there was that one, and the one near the end where the where Q showed up, and yeah. they they learned that something some anomaly was was expanding backwards in time. Right. That was yeah, time. Yeah, that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty wild. And so, plus you know it had Q in it. He's an awesome character. There you go. Anyway, <laughs> we do a Sorry. lot of these sidetracks. Um, but I think that's what makes it entertaining. Um, hopefully. Um, so, um, so that's basically it. And the other, uh, not to be out on Google has released something called a tensor flow. And, uh, that's, um, 
very interesting framework. I, I need to spend some quality time with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also CNTK, which is uh, a Microsoft entry. And what's interesting is all these are open source. Yeah. Uh, which is is kind of fascinating, and particularly Microsoft getting hardcore into the open source space. But that's a that's a topic for another show. Well, it's definitely um, a shift from where they were. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so CNTK shift, is interesting because CNTK's um, mo is they want to provide they, their their mo is is being very practical and efficient and uh, working fast. That's kind of their thing. Right. Um, and they said, you know, we want you to be able to create high quality, um, you know, models for production. Uh, and actually a lot of the things at Microsoft, if not all, Microsoft does a the good thing in what they call dog fooding where they use what they build. That's their right. thing. And they're doing that with CNTK. And I probably tossed a few terms in there. And um, one of the things I heard on .NET Rocks recently was uh, – you know, you can tell they're a data scientist because you can't understand them. Um, <laughs> well, it makes sense. If you, if, you, if you pull up a YouTube video on this, it's like, you know, we'll talk about stuff, gastic gradient descent and create models and, you know. Um, so a model is a um, from a model of the world, if you will. So let's pretend that, you know, I want to correlate um, um, ice cream sales to um, temperature, right? Right. We can kind of intuitively think that, you know, when it gets colder, you're going to sell less. When it gets hotter, it's going to sell more. Um, Makes sense. Now, right. And so cause it's not causation, it's correlation, right? Causation would be when it gets hotter, you know, ice cream portals open up in time and space when it gets hotter and shoves <laughs> ice cream in your mouth. <laughs> I mean, that would be that would be close to the causation. Although somebody would probably argue that causation is temperature making the wormholes open up. Anyway, uh, <laughs> causation is a very tricky animal to catch. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so the correlation would be some something happens and then this happens. Uh, another example I, I heard was um, you know there's a correlation between if you drive a luxury car and your income. Right. right. So a false right. correlation would be, well, I'll just go buy a Lexus and my life will be set. Right. Um, right. Doesn't, doesn't work that way. Um, right. So uh, what happens is, so let's go back to the ice cream example. Is that So uh, I plot my stuff on a chart, right? And I see when temperature goes up, my sales go up. What I would do is I'd create a model or a formula to kind of regress it, right? reverse engineer. What's the magic formula that I can predict that if it's 90 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, I'm going to sell X amount of ice cream. Right, right, yeah. Uh, and that's pretty much what it is. So I, I get an input value. Uh, it's a magic box. I, I give it 90 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, and it comes mm-hmm. out with you'll sell $200 ice cream today. Right. So the model is what's inside that magic box. Right. Now, that's just linear regression. There's all sorts of fun things. Linear is means line Uh, you can do parabolic. There's all sorts of uh, types of regression models, but that's essentially kind of the basics. I like that explanation, Frank. Um, One thing I thought of, um, I didn't want to interrupt you while you were on a roll. Uh, We threw out CNTK a couple of times. That's an acronym for... Cognitive something toolkit. I think it's actually cognitive toolkit. I think the N is in the. 
Oh, okay. Cognitive. I, I don't. I don't understand why, but I think that's what it. Microsoft's cognitive toolkit is, is what I found when I I did a quick search on it. Okay. So there's there's that. I absolutely loved your explanation of the difference between correlation and causation, because a lot of times we'll hear people usually refuting some point, say, you know, correlation is not causation. And and what I think I just heard you say was, that's very rarely ever the case. Right. And there's a number so, of things, you know, like um, yeah. the... I forget what I was going to say. That's very rarely the case. There's always some kind of intermediate factor that will affect, you know, input and output. Um, when we get right down to the bottom of data science, isn't it a search for correlation? Yeah, effectively. I mean, um, there's 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 kind of more to it. But yeah, I mean, a, you know, a big chunk of data science is figuring out. And I, I mean, it makes sense, you know, like predictive analytics, right? You know, is something going to happen? Sure. Um, you know, if, if this sensor fires off a, an alert, does that mean that in you know, so many hours, I'm going to have a failure on a, something on my factory floor. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, that's essentially what it is. It's all about finding correlation. Yeah, I and, think so. And um, I, I mean, we know, you know, based on life that sometimes we can get the same indicator or the same signal and it mean two different things. We can have a, you know, in one instance, it could, it could be an indicator that something bad is happening, but in another instance, it could be just, it could be uh, the signal could be lying to us, or it could be that there's some other outcome, not bad. I was going to say there's false positives, false negatives. Um, and, and then, you know, once you get above that, uh, when you're talking about correlations, sometimes the correlation is a, is a true and accurate correlation. This, this, is, uh, you know, this indicates that uh, sometimes uh, that, You'll find out if you look at that same thing in a, in a predictive analytics sense, you'll see that same uh, apparent cause, that same signal, and then the outcome is different. Either it, you know, the bad thing doesn't happen or the good thing doesn't happen. It's 90 degrees and you only sell $20 worth of ice cream. Um, and what that means is usually that you don't have enough factors in play. You, you, you need to consider other inputs uh, along with that. Right, exactly. So there could be, uh, I don't know, a baseball game. There could have been an earthquake evacuation or or something like that. And this is where yeah. I think machines really accelerate because what you're doing is you're adding dimensions to the data. Right. Exactly. So data engineers would call it adding columns. Data scientists would say you're adding dimensions to the data. Um. And that that's kind of how the the what that means. So maybe there was an earthquake. Maybe there was uh, I don't know. Maybe you were in. Um, everybody went to the beach that weekend, or you know, you're not in yeah. the beach town. You're you know. So I mean, there right. there are extenuating factors. Maybe it was a holiday weekend. There's all sorts of things that can affect that. So the other thing that is is data science is kind of exploring and finding out what those extra factors are and finding right. You know. Um, but at some point you have to kind of give up because if you, if you try to make a model that's too perfect, um, based on your test data, you get something called, um, overfitting. Right. Uh, and this was actually something, so we, we're, we're super excited and chuffed even, uh, <laughs> we've been getting a lot of, uh, feedback from our listeners lately. And one of them was kind of explaining overfitting. So overfitting mm -hmm. is the phenomenon where you work so hard on crafting your perfect model. 
that you get an accuracy rate, you know, high in a 90%, maybe even a hundred percent. Yeah. Which is impossible because essentially <laughs> what you've done is you've created a model that uh, takes into account all the entropy in the universe. Right. <laughs> so if, if you've actually created that, chances are you're wrong. But on the off chance that you're right and you're on to something, start a hedge fund and buy some Bitcoin and retire. Um, <laughs> but I mean, realistically, that's not the case. So you, you really, depending on what you, what you want to accomplish, you know, you're going to want an accuracy rate, high 80s um, to mid 90s, I would say would be a fair rate. Although mid 90s mm-hmm. seems kind of high to me. Uh, because you never know. Because if you if you if you work so hard on training your data, because that's how you, you teach these things. You 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 take your raw data that you have to test. You split it into two parts, right? And once for testing, once for training. So you give it a you give it a bunch of data. Say, hey, here's some data algorithm. Um, figure out if there's a correlation, if there's patterns in here, and then it'll come out and it'll say a model. It's like, all right, well, let me test you, and then you take your test data and then you you feed that through. Um, so if you work in your model to the point where you are perfecting it on your test data it's going to be it's going to do awesome on your test data but terrible in the real world right and that's really the key there um that is overfitting that is overfitting so that was actually a question submitted to us by a listener uh and uh he really liked the idea of um of doing deep dives into tech and with that we are about an hour out so I think we should call it quits here and then uh, let us know what you think about this format with this idea. Um, if you thought it was awesome, if you thought it was awful, if you thought it was the best thing you ever heard, if you thought it was the worst thing you ever heard and you're going to burn your iPhone right now, that's cool. Let us know. Just don't burn your iPhone. Um, wait until the class action lawsuit goes through and then $20. And, um, but we do have a special deal for listeners. Uh, what is that, Andy? Free uh, audiobook? If you go to thedatadrivenbook.com, you can sign up for a free Audible subscription and you get a free audiobook download uh, when you sign up. Awesome. So, with that, I will let the nice British lady take us out. Thanks for listening to Data Driven. Don't just listen, become a data driver by going to datadriven.tv to sign up to join the community, access to special events, tips and tricks, and more. Sign up today at datadriven.tv.